Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So coups have been in the news, but when I see coup, I think coupe, like an ice cream coupe or a champagne coupe. An ice cream? Or a coupe de ville. Like, the like an, a coupe of ice cream. Yeah, like a coupe. <laughs> I thought you were it's a cup of ice cream. <laughs> but the little glass is called a coupe. How fancy are you? Even your ice cream is fancy. <laughs> what, what are you, darling, what do you put your ice cream in? I think we should all have coupes d'etat, which uh, are you know, little champagne uh, cocktail glasses that overthrow governments. What if you had an ice cream store founded by coup plotters called Scoop de <laughs> <laughs> That would be awesome. <laughs> scoop de That's it. Sorry. It's a new profession. Let's make Can it Can this be the Scoop de edition? Oh, my God. I wish <laughs> it were. I already named it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security. The, you know what? Screw it. It is the Scoop d'etat edition. It's the Scoop d'etat edition. <laughs> you know, it's only written in the script. We haven't actually uploaded this thing yet. Oh my God. I am delighted by that. I seriously am. I don't know why. I want to start this business. We should refer to all the coups we're going to talk about today as little scoops to talk. Totally. Oh, and it could be like, you know, and this is the perfect thing for a journalist to found too, scoop to talk. This would only happen in Washington, D.C., where like yes. weird name puns for pet shops and uh, ice cream yes. stores are like, people just can't get enough of them. Totally. Totally. The only question is like what neighborhood we would put it in. I think we should have a little cocktail, which is like in a served in a coupe. Uh huh. It's a scoop uh-huh. of sorbet uh-huh. with champagne. There you go. Poured over it. And That's it's it. Scoop de ta. That's it. Yeah. That's what we're gonna have. That's our object lesson. I, sh- I wish I had time to go make them for us right now, but alas, I would have to drink them with you virtually because I'm here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi guys. Hi. Hey Shane. Tammy is away today, in a secret location somewhere else in the a Wittes. Secure compound. underground bunker in the Wittes households. No, it's overground. Okay, it's above ground. That's, that's good. <laughs> That's good. On this Scoopy podcast this week, Jordanian authorities mount arrests and detain a member of the royal family in what authorities called a threat to security and stability in the country, which is a key U.S. ally. An attack on the Capitol in Washington raises more questions about long-term security of that building. And the Biden administration seeks a way back to the negotiating table with Iran. So let us start with the, the Scoop or don't call it a scoop, or don't call it a coop, or whatever we're calling it, in Jordan. Uh, this is a pretty fast-moving story that developed over the weekend. Um, just uh, recapping here from my colleagues, Joby Warwick and others. Jordanian authorities on Saturday arrested as many as 20 people and sought to restrain the movement of a former crown prince amid what officials call a threat to security and stability in the country. Prince Hamza bin Hussein, the eldest son of the late King Hussein and his American-born wife, Queen Noor, was told to remain at his palace in Amman amid an investigation to an alleged plot to unseat 
his older half-brother, King Abdullah II. Since then, it sounds kind of like the brothers have mended fences. The former crown prince, who had been under house arrest, affirmed his loyalty in a written statement to his brother. The Jordanians have not called this a coup, notably. There's a great episode of the Lawfare podcast with Scott Anderson interviewing experts on this, if you want to check that out and get into kind of the intrigue and the family dynamics here. But Ben, how are you interpreting these events and, and underscoring you know, what a key and stalwart ally Jordan is to the United States in the region, which is why we're concerned about this? And do you think we could call what happened an attempted coup? Well, I have seen scant evidence of an actual coup attempt, which would involve, you know, elements of the military trying to seize power. It doesn't look like we've seen anything like that. What we've seen is the Jordanian government claiming that there was some kind of effort by people internally, including perhaps the former crown prince, Prince Hamza, and foreign entities or a foreign government, which is as yet, as I best as I can tell, still unidentified. And so it is not clear to me whether what's going on here is that Prince Hamza, who has been, you know, outspoken as these things go about corruption and the lack of liberalism, you know, is being sort of targeted for criticism of the regime or whether what's going on here is that he was actually trying to do something. I think the incident is a reminder that in monarchies, real monarchies, not like, you know, European style constitutional monarchies that are basically parliamentary democracies, you know, things get pretty Byzantine pretty fast. And Jordan is a you know, quite attractive absolute monarchy as absolute monarchies go. Uh, It's a staunch U.S. ally. It is a very constructive regional player in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, the palace intrigue around King Abdullah and previously his father, King Hussein, is quite medieval uh, and also very opaque. And it is very hard to tell, you know, there's a kind of Medici era, uh, you know, sort of Italian vibe to a lot of the stuff that goes on. Uh, And I think this is a real inherent creature of, you know, monarchies where kings really do still wield power. And Prince Hamza, remember, was until a few months before his father died, was the the crown prince. And so from his point of view, his little brother, little half-brother, is sitting on the throne that he had grown up expecting to be his. And, you know, so it all sounds super weird uh, from an American perspective, but this, not Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, is what monarchies are really like. I mean, one thing that's interesting is how to read the sort of fragments of journalism and intelligence we see leaking out in press reports that appear to be sort of as described in the sourcing primarily 
Middle East intelligence sourcing rather than American intelligence officials. There's a strong intimation that the foreign involvement here might be the Saudis, but essentially the evidence of that is Jordanian law enforcement officials talking, sort of referring opaquely to foreign influence, foreign ties in this effort, and then also sort of a surprise Saudi delegation showing up in Jordan, you know, sort of expressing concern and sort of saying, we're not leaving, you know, without the prince. And so uh, sort of the suggestion of, well, is that because you're worried what he might say if, if you know, if he doesn't go with you or sort of what exactly- Or do you want to cut dog? him into little pieces? Well, I, I'm sort of curious for, for both of you, is that- uh, so? Whenever I read that, Ben, I, I I thought, okay, obviously the foreign influence here must be the Saudis. Am I overreading? Is that sort of too strong? Because actually, there are lots of reasons why the Saudis might be really interested in this, even if they are not kind of the the foreign country at at issue here. Or is that a pretty big hint of who we're talking about? I think it is, and it isn't. So it is true that the Saudis throw their weight around a lot. They, after all, remember kind of kidnapped the prime minister of Lebanon not too long ago. So they're certainly not above uh, what you're describing. It is also the case that the Saudis and the Jordanians, of course, are related families. The Jordanian monarchy is, is, is originally a Saudi family that the British kind of gave Jordan as a consolation prize after World War I. And, you know, so there's a, there are ties between the families that are quite old and, and substantial. It is not clear to me that there is a plot here with a foreign power. And so I don't know that I want to say, and the foreign power behind the plot is clearly Saudi Arabia, because I first want to know whether there's evidence that there was actually a plot or whether this is just... King Abdullah trying to, you know, neutralize his brother as a political force. I mean, that I, I think that is a really interesting question about to what extent the United States will now apply pressure in order to get that information, because there are two pretty drastically competing narratives. One is essentially this was the early stages of a coup attempt linked to a foreign country. Uh, you know, this is a, a really significant law enforcement action, Jordanian law enforcement action to disrupt this thing, something that threatens obviously not just sort of Jordanian national security, but also the stability of a U.S. ally that is prized for its stability um, and and is sort of uh, therefore quite justified. The other story here is that this is about sort of quelching dissent. um, And and essentially, Prince Hamza said, you know, I was at a meeting in which we we criticized the government and I've been an outspoken critic uh, of corruption uh, in the regime. And, And this is all about retaliation. And Whenever we look at sort of the public nature of something like this, right, stepping in in a way, detaining people, burning your your intelligence, that's something that ordinarily you would do because you were afraid that something was imminently about to happen um, and sort of you needed to take action rather than allowing, you know, the, the sort of further development of, of, of evidence or, um, you know, for sort of criminal prosecution or for intelligence purposes. Now we have this weird thing in which there's now but a statement released sort of reaffirming loyalty 
and support for the king. You know, are the Jordanians now going to produce their proof that it's one and not the other? And if they refuse to do so, is the United States and the international community going to sort of say, okay, well, it looks like the, 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 the family conflict has been mediated. And so now like, la, 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 we're going to pretend as though nothing is going on here because the last thing we want to do is like kick a hornet's nest. Or instead, are they going to sort of be alarmed by this and, and press for real answers and, and information? And I, I just haven't seen signs from the White House yet, like what they might be inclined to do. Door number one. <laughs> <laughs> they will do door number one. <laughs> I mean, another complicating factor in this, and, and the reason my ears perked up when I heard the Saudis mentioned, and to your point, Susan, it's right. It's not clear whether this is some sort of coincidence or the Jordanians trying to draw people's attention to it. But, you know, the Saudi government is de facto led by, I think, by all accounts, a pretty highly unstable individual right now. And the United States has a very strong, close intelligence and counterterrorism relationship with the Jordanians. And right now we don't have one with the Saudis because of the highly unstable individual who's in charge of their government. And so, you know, it puts the United States in this weird position of, I mean, the Jordanians and the Saudis are both our allies, but like, I think we probably our intelligence services would look at Jordan right now and its government and, and, and say, this is a more stable and certainly easier to deal with regime than the one that we have with Mohammed bin Salman in Riyadh. And, you know, this doesn't exactly inspire confidence, these recent events, right? This family squabble that has geopolitical, you know, implications, uh, you know, and of course, then, you know, I don't want to say it's conspiracy theorizing, but, you know, you hear people and experts in the region saying, well, are the Saudis now in league with the Israelis to pressure the Jordanians? And it starts to look like some kind of like Mideast Game of Thrones a little bit. Look, I think to, to focus on Susan's question for just a second, the United States has many interests with Jordan, and they all revolve around stability in the regime. They don't revolve around transparency. They don't revolve around, you know, the U.S. theory of the Jordanian case is this is the best governed non-totalitarian state in the Middle East that's not Israel. And it has a lot of professional government. And, you know, our main interest right now is to make sure the situation doesn't cause destabilization of a regime that from our perspective works quite well. And so if Hamza and Prince Hamza and King Abdullah can hug it out and issue a statement, that's good enough for us, I think. All right. Well, speaking of highly stable countries, let's come back to Washington here for a moment. Uh, last Friday, we had another attack at the U.S. Capitol. A U.S. Capitol police officer was killed and another was injured after a man rammed a car into a checkpoint and then lunged at the officers with a knife. An officer shot and killed the attacker. Still a fair amount that we don't know about the individual's motivations, if any, which sort of complicates the discussion around this event and trying to put it into some kind of context around the uh, most recent attack on the Capitol, of course, which was January 6th. Susan, I think safe to say that on the surface, these look like pretty obviously different events, right? I mean, one was a political attack, if you want to call it an insurrection. We've called it that before in the podcast, stoked up by the president. This other, you know, 
is an individual whose motives are not entirely clear and kind of feels more to me in the category maybe of previous security incidents we'd seen at the Capitol where, you know, officers have been engaged or even shot in some cases. And, you know, and sometimes it's just, you know, to use a technical term, a random crazy person who decided to drive his car into a barricade. But it does raise this broader question because, you know, security at the Capitol has been as intense as any period that in the 20 years I've lived in Washington. I mean, during the inauguration and preceding it, the whole area around the Capitol and the mall was essentially a fortress. And we haven't really come down from a lot of that high alert since January 6th in some ways. The visible signs of a security presence are still there. So do you think it's inevitable that the Capitol building and the surrounding area is just going to be like a fortress and, and frankly, something that's more like the White House, which is essentially a building that is cordoned off from almost the entirety of the public and is not like what the Capitol used to be, which was a very open building that it was easy to go into uh, while you were conducting the people's business? Yeah, so um, I do think that this really complicates the efforts of people who are sort of arguing for a return to normalcy. And so I do think that it's important for sort of listeners to understand this. When Shane says this is unlike anything we've seen in 20 years, like this is unlike anything we've seen even in the aftermath of 9-11, right, when the Capitol was a designated target. And um, whenever we think about securing the Capitol complex, um, we're talking about something really different than something like the White House. House, which is really two office buildings that are sort of uh, surrounded by a series of, of parks and fencing. You know, the Capitol is a complex. It's, a, it's sort of the Capitol building in the middle, surrounded by offices that are essentially linked by underground tunnels. It is a huge portion of the center of Washington, D.C. And so what we're seeing here is people who live here. You know, I, I live rather close to the Capitol. This is our neighborhood. This is where, like, our kids go to play at the park. All of this being essentially fenced off with razor wire and National Guardsmen blocking this area is a completely different scale and, and magnitude than anything we've seen before. And whenever we see an event like what we saw last week, there's always a little bit of a tension between um, wanting to say, Shane, uh, you know, that this looks really different than sort of the, the terrorism event that we saw on January 6th, something that was organized, that was pretty clearly ideologically motivated in nature, versus something like this that on the surface looks like some Somebody who maybe has an undiagnosed mental illness. This might be sort of suicide by cops, something sort of like that. Because, of course, there is a, a disproportionate tendency when the perpetrator is white to sort of say, well, this is mental illness. You know, this isn't this isn't terrorism, right? There's always sort of concern about whether or not those sort of factors are in play and how we perceive and, and describe a given event. In this case, though, sort of failure to appropriately categorize it, if it is indeed something different, and I, I think we probably should understand it as something different, um, really changes how we're going to respond to this. And so it also shows the, the different natures of the threats in question. Or whenever we're talking about what the security posture of the U.S. Capitol, the seat of democracy, the People's House, this really, really important uh, and formerly quite public space, what that should look like, if we're talking about securing that from insurrection, mobs, also one-off attacks with cars, also, individuals getting through metal detectors, potentially armed. Also, individual security for high-profile you know, members of Congress. We're talking about the kind of 
really, really complicated security environment in which, you know, the impulse of the security apparatus that's responsible for it and is being held accountable for this now and criticized for it is going to be lock it all down, make it into a fortress, control everybody who walks in and out because the alternatives of trying to address these sort of these varied and evolving threats over time is just too hard. And and the problem is that's a really, really unfortunate and damaging outcome. Um, and so sort of how we like find the right equilibrium here is a hard question. But a week ago, I was hopeful kind of the barricades were going to come down. We might return back to normal. Members of Congress were really, really pushing the Capitol Police on this. Now that all appears to sort of have, have stalled. And, and I do think we might see sort of an indefinite kind of U.S. Capitol fortress. Yeah, so a few a few things I, I don't disagree with any of that. The first is it is actually impossible to turn the Capitol into the White House. And the reason is the sheer number of people who have occasion to visit it on a day-to-day basis. So the White House has the staff in it of exactly two people, the president and the vice president. Those are very large staffs, but the Capitol has the staffs of uh, 535 people. And uh, those staffs are, of course, individually much smaller, but the raw numbers of people who have to who have to have daily access to it is large. Moreover, and this point is, I think, more important than a lot of people understand, the nature of being a member of Congress or a senator, is that you're meeting with people every day and you are doing it in your offices, not in theirs. A House and Senate office is a very busy place. When you walk into one, there's always, you know, lobbyists, activists, other members milling about because, you know, what these guys do for a living is basically talk to people. And so the nature of the business of the institution where you have you know, it's tens of thousands of people who work there every day. And then there are the hordes of people before you get to the tourists who have reasonable business there mean that you are not going to be able to lock it down. And I think that does create a incentive to think a little bit more creatively than you might about the White House. And you know, some of us are old enough to remember when you could just kind of walk up to the White House, too. You know, that was not that long ago. And it changed because of, you know, the guy who landed a plane on the White House lawn. That's what, you know. He was trying to give Bill Clinton a security briefing. You know, it was a well intentioned, uh, unfortunate little insta- incident. Well, I'll make another point, too, that this reminds me of. Uh, in some ways, after 9 11, I was thinking about this before we before we got on. I was like, is this kind of like like you know when you had Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, just after the main attack? And I thought, well, no, because that actually was a direct threat to aviation that potentially could have brought an airplane down. So this is different. But something that does remind me about nine eleven is that we never really seemed to have as a country the big discussion about trading off security versus you know access to services. I mean, and Jay Johnson, when he was Homeland Security Secretary, many years after 9-11, gave a very memorable speech on this where he said, basically, look, you know, I could give you completely safe air travel if you want it. You're going to have to fly naked and we're going to do 
rigorous background checks on you on a regular basis before you get onto the airplane. And, you know, there was never this kind of frank discussion of, look, if you want to be able to have a free and open society, as we all do, you're going to have to accept that there is a risk that an airplane goes down or that somebody tries to get into the Capitol in this context. And politicians don't want to have that conversation. They're risk averse by nature. Uh, And it's a very difficult one to have with people because it sounds almost like you're passing a buck. But I mean, hasn't history demonstrated us like you are going to have attacks at the Capitol? Like even when it's a fortress, you had somebody ram a car into a barricade and kill someone. It just, you know, we're never going to have perfect security on this. I think the question is whether or not you have mechanisms to ramp back down. And one actual good example under the Trump administration was this clear specific intelligence of some sort about the threat of laptops. Remember, there was a period of time in which you were not allowed to bring laptops on planes. They were obviously very concerned about batteries. Something was going on. That lasted for a a fixed period of time. Um, And then it went away. But we're still taking our shoes off at the airport. And so I think the question of whether whenever you add those enhanced measures, you have a natural sunset mechanism or a way to ramp back down because it's always harder to to sort of make that choice and go in that direction. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Fly with flip-flops. (laughs) <laughs> no. And no. five-fingered shoes. Oh, God. What? <laughs> you have learned all the wrong lessons. You it's realize American. This. The terrorists win if the answer is everyone flies <laughs> with flip-flops and five-fingered shoes. It's just, no. No, it's not okay. It's not okay at all. Oh, well, speaking of, I don't even have a good transition for this one. I'm trying to think of like... Back Speaking of five-fingered shoes, <laughs> in Iran, where nobody Iran. wears them... <laughs> Who wears five-fingered shoes other than you? You know what? I don't even want to make fun of Ben for it because I got so many people tweeting at me in defense of the dumb desk elliptical last week that like it's it only makes him stronger, Shane. Oh my gosh. I really just don't know what to do with that. Well, we'll just go ahead and skip on with the news. But uh, news this week that U.S. negotiators are going to begin indirect talks with Iran uh, that the Biden administration hopes will reestablish restrictions on Iran's nuclear program. Uh, These, I think, have actually begun now, right? They began yesterday. Um, So we have this kind of dance where there are intermediaries, I guess, shuffling between rooms where we're sitting and where the Iranians are sitting, talking about how we get back to the negotiating table on the uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JICPOA, which does not roll off the tongue. Could we pick a, Maybe they could pick a new name for it, by the way. Like that would be a good start. I would appreciate that. It would be great if it could be an acronym for Iran nuclear deal. Oh, yeah. Or just Iran nuke. 
get the get the people who come up with the acronym names for bills in Congress because that is some like verbal acrobatics. This is the hard hitting security analysis that the people <laughs> demand. Let's get the machine that names NSA programs to come up with it, like Insouciant Giraffe. That's the new name for the Iran nuclear deal. Excellent. Is that an actual name of something? I think I think it was like obstreperous giraffe or something. There was definitely something giraffe that was in the Snowden documents. People will tweet it at me. <laughs> but Ben, the two sides heading these negotiations, which you know are kind of like negotiations about negotiations. Who do you think has the upper hand as they start out? Well, I think the United States clearly has the upper hand, actually. You know, say what you will about the Trump administration's policy toward Iran. It created a a situation in which the Iranians are really up against a wall economically. Uh, They need a deal much more than the United States needs a deal at this point. And while they are saber rattling and demanding all kinds of things in the way of sanctions relief preemptively that they're most unlikely to get, I think the consequences for them of not having a deal relatively quickly are much higher than the consequences of uh, for the United States. And so I think the Biden administration is in a position to think kind of imaginatively here about uh, how much it can get done. That said, you know, the history of dealing with the Iranians is a history of frustration. And they're not, the fact that they have more to lose here does not mean that they will be in an accommodating posture. And so I don't, I don't think that's any guarantee that this negotiation is going to proceed in a attractive or or friendly fashion. But I do think the Iranians are in a very very tough position. I, one thing I'll be curious to see, and um, I have I wish Tammy was here today because I feel like I have a million questions for her about all of this. But one sort of I, I guess almost tangential question I have is whether or not we're going to see as we're in this sort of um, negotiations about further negotiating, um, sort of what is going to be the currency of sort of confidence building measures before we get to sort of the actual measures on the table, which are really about steps in uh, that the Iranians should take it with the re- regards to the development of their nuclear program and uh, sort of the lifting of sanctions on the U.S. side. So what's going to be that preliminary currency? I, I will be curious to see whether or not uh, the Biden administration uses this to put the issue of essentially Iranian hostages on the table again. Um, this is an area in which sort of the Trump administration had a lot of focus on hostage policy early on. Uh, I think the president, President Trump, really um, uh, sort of liked the the cowboy rhetoric that he could engage in there and really was not especially successful when it comes to Iran. Um, There are a lot of people who continue to be imprisoned um, in Iran essentially for for political purposes. Um, And so I I will be curious to see whether or not that becomes something, uh, whether the White House sort of identifies that as something to put on the table or if the policy world or advocates outside the White House don't use this as an opportunity to really start pressuring the Biden administration to start making some commitments there. Because it doesn't, uh, it's sort of, it's hard to imagine um, what the other sort of preliminary levers might look like, especially whenever sort of my understanding of the Iranian position is essentially, there are no measures to take care of. There is one measure and that's for you people to lift the sanctions that you put on us. So you let us know when you're ready to do that. And like, until then, you know, like go jump in a lake. Again, like I, I feel like if Tammy was here, she would have a good coherent answer for that. But that is one thing that whenever I'm sort of pouring through the the news report, 
reports on this. And as we're sort of getting preliminary reports for the, from these, you know, early meetings out of Vienna that are happening over the course of these couple of days, you know, are we seeing that mentioned? Are we seeing Tony Blinken tweet about hostages? Are we, like, you know, are we seeing Ned Price, the State Department spokesman, um, you know, sort of referencing this stuff more and more as a sign of what might be happening behind closed doors? Um, or is that sort of too sensitive and fraught and uh, likely to backfire? I mean, one thing that surprised me a little bit in this, and maybe it shouldn't, was because the sanctions are quite punishing on Iran and they would like to get them lifted, is in a way how quickly, you know, that they were willing to go back to the negotiating table. I guess there was a part of me that wondered, was the fact that the previous administration ripped up the deal and walked away. I mean, we were the first to essentially pull out. We negated the deal, not Iran. And, and, and their violations of the terms of the agreement came after the United States was pulling out. Would they then look at us and say, you know, look, we get that you're not Donald Trump, but we can't enter into a durable negotiation with a country that is poised to just renege on this deal when you have a change in political parties, which increasingly you could imagine the Iran deal becoming like, like what is the, the abortion funding in Mexico, the Mexico agreement? Mexico City Mexico City. Right. It just gets like switched on and off every time there's a D or an R in and out of the White House. You know, so there, I do wonder to what degree that is a headwind, you know, versus the Iranians realizing, look, we got a short term deal we got to work with here and we, we can't be too worried about that far in the future. Well, I, I think... I think that's a much bigger issue than just Iran. I don't know of prior situations in which the United States has entered into, you know, a major international deal. And granted, it was not a legally binding treaty commitment, but it was a major deal. And then a new administration gets elected and walks away from it. That is a damaging thing to U.S. negotiating prestige uh, as a general proposition. I do think it's somewhat ameliorated by the fact that the Israeli revelations about, you know, the Israeli capture of that large archive of Iranian material shows that the Iranians were not exactly being wholly compliant and uh, had not, in fact, disclosed the extent of their activity. And so I think there is a little bit of okay, Trump walked away from the deal and abrogated the deal, but it wasn't like you were quite following it anyway. And in any event, the Iranians are so far from compliance themselves now that we're really realistically talking about some kind of new deal rather than simply, okay, we'll both observe what we agreed to a number of years ago. I mean, Shane, sort of two, two sort of points. One is to the extent that sort of Iranian unwillingness to come to the table even or even sooner was what delayed it thus far. I, I think the Biden administration um, has every incentive to um, give quite a bit of information about the timing here, in part because um, they've been taking hits from the U.S. policy community for waiting this long and saying, hey, look, you've got Iranian elections in two months. There's a ticking clock. You should have started this months ago. You know, they're, they're um, getting criticism for, for essentially taking too long. And so I do think that if the answer here is no, it's not that they've been ready and ready and willing and we just didn't get around to it because we were too busy with other stuff. But instead, they haven't been ready and willing. And, you know, the, the success here is really about the strength of our ability to sort of coerce them to the table. I, I think they'll be prepared to tell that story in some capacity pretty quickly because uh, it's sort of it's an important policy one. The other thing, and, and look, you're absolutely right about sort of the lack of binding treaties and and sort of the ways in which uh, executive you know, foreign policy through executive 
executive order and executive action um, is not as robust as certainly after uh, sort of the Trump administration. That said, I, I do think that there's um, real reason to believe this is not going to become like the Mexico City policy in which it just sort of goes back and forth. In part that um, Republicans said forever that they could get a better deal. And guess what? They withdrew and uh, they couldn't get a better deal. They couldn't even get anything close to a better deal. And it was just so, tra- it became so transparently obvious that even under the, the best of situations, um, they were not going to negotiate anything better. I mean, uh, again, like I, you know, politicians are, are capable of um, astonishing sort of shamelessness and hypocrisy. But I do think that the idea that somebody credibly in the future could say, you guys negotiated a bad deal and we can get a better one if we just pull out of this and maximum pressure, like the people who actually care about that rhetoric and focus on it. I, I just I can't see how anybody can make that argument with a straight face because they had four years to do it and they couldn't get it done. Except that they can argue that Joe Biden is accommodationist towards Iran and, you know, is not a friend of Israel. I mean, they'll do all the predictable sure, things, course. right? I mean, that will that will just, just sort of, you know, well, we'll see. I'm jealous of people who get to go to Vienna right now. That sounds lovely. I guess flying right now. You gotta have your mask on. Yeah, I just, getting on a plane doesn't scare me now that I'm getting vaccinated. But the wearing the mask thing on the plane, ugh, just it's a lot. And I'm and I'm not anti-mask. I like the mask. I just don't want to wear it for eight hours on an airplane. Although I whoa, well, there's little masks over my eyes, but that's different. You could do both, like full mask. <laughs> oh, good. I'll sleep. I'll sleep very well. It'll be very nice. Let's go on to uh, object lessons. Uh, ben, you want to start? So I have two object lessons. Oh, I am for the price of one. Sharing with you guys the first one. So for a number of months now, I have been tweeting in the hashtag beast of the day, mm-hmm. an animal that oh, for yes. one reason or another amuses me. Um, and um, that I think my Twitter audience should share, should see. And uh, sometimes these are serious, you know, conservation, this is an endangered species. And sometimes uh, they're uh, more whimsical. And one of the results of tweeting every day, the beast of the day hashtag is that now people from all over the world send me beasts as nominations. A daily beast, you might say. Yes. And so today, um, Kate Klonick sent me a monitor lizard in a convenience store in Thailand. So good. And uh, for those of you who don't know what a monitor lizard is, these are the biggest lizards in the world. The biggest of them is, of course, the Komodo dragon. But monitor lizards, think of them, you know, they are the size of, they're much larger than alligators. They are very large. They uh, run extremely fast. They can swim very long distances. They eat wild boars and sometimes small children, and their bites are septic. You can die of the infections associated with their bites. And so this is a a, a little video taken in a convenience store in Thailand of a hungry monitor lizard that just found the convenience store and is climbing on the shelves. And, you know, it reminds me of the horse in the hospital description of the Trump administration. Uh, I just leave it uh, in your feeds for a, uh, as a taste of everything that is wrong in the world. 
monitor lizards do not belong in convenience store shelves. Can I just say that in the Venn diagram of conversations <laughs> I have with Ben and conversations I have with my six-year-old, the overlap is not nothing. And it's primarily about reptiles. lizards, reptiles of yeah. all kinds. The lizard is also having a tough time getting up those shelves, poor lizard. Although he manages it. Oh, he does I just it. want to say, and uh, if you come upon in your local convenience store a monitor lizard, back out slowly. Don't attract its attention. Don't These things are no joke. All right. Um, we will share that in the show notes. The more serious object lesson is that on Thursday, which is to say tomorrow as we are taping, Virginia Heffernan and I are releasing a new little podcast series that will be of interest to uh, rational security listeners. So about six months ago, Lawfare published the book After Trump by Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, which, as you most of you know, is a serious examination of the prospects for legal reforms in the wake of Donald Trump. Virginia Heffernan, who has spent the last four years doing Trumpcast for Slate, I called her up and suggested that she host a podcast which we colloquially call After Trumpcast. It is actually called After Trump, After the Book, about the uh, reforms proposed in Bob and Jack's book. No president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, has ever, ever cross that line. Um, the president continues to tweet and act He's a showboat. He's a grandstander. The FBI. I think they're unprecedented uh, in their inappropriateness. You know, a president should not be commenting on any uh, particular criminal investigation. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Shocking statements on the rule of law in the United States of America, acknowledging... Proud boys, stand back and stand by. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. But... A source tells CNN that President Trump is discussing preemptive pardons for people close to him. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. This is a narrative podcast, kind of like the report that, that Susan did uh, a couple years ago. And it is an effort to tell the story of the behind these proposals, also how the book came about, and also to walk through the problems that led to these proposals and how the proposals would actually work. We've been working with our Goat Rodeo friends to produce it, and the first episode will drop tomorrow, and I am super excited about it, and you can find it at aftertrumppod.com. Only you and Lawfare could bring together these three people. I mean, Bob Bauer, Jack Goldsmith, and Virginia Heffernan. Like, that's just, that is not a combination that you they would They sound fabulous about. together. But it would sure be a very great. fun dinner party. Oh, my God. <laughs> totally. I'd go out to an, I'd go ice cream scooping with them anytime. Also, can I just say, while Ben was talking, an actual lizard ran across my window out of nowhere. <laughs> and I took a picture and sent it to you both. Ben is wheeling things into happening. It's like, I don't know, maybe two inches long. It looks like a... So think of a lizard 
500 times that size and I you will really rather not <laughs> but give us your object susan um so my object is actually a repeat object um and that's whenever we oh. uh, which i've shared before um but i think it's worth sharing again um and that's that i'm um, sort of the images coming out of the capital this week even though we've described the event as being really different um uh you know of sort of armed national guard and security lockdowns um uh is a, a pretty stressful and traumatizing event not just for uh, capital police officers who of course lost one of their own on january 6th but also members of congress and their staff um who are still recovering from something that was a really, really a difficult event for them. Um, and uh, sort of noting that um, for any members or staff that um, feel like they need some support right now, um, sort of in, in the wake of this event, an organization that was set up after January 6th, capitalstrong.org, which is really about giving um, sort of resources, mental health support, you know, to people who went through this really, really difficult thing. Um, you know, that's still there. It's still operating. There, There's no sort of reason not to reach out if you uh, if you need help. This was a, a scary and upsetting experience. And um, any rational person um, who had experienced January 6th and, and went through this last week might feel as though they need to talk to someone. And so just um, reminding people that that organization does exist. Um, uh, and and to, you know, for listeners, just to sort of keep people um, in their thoughts, not just the family of Billy Evans, who was the U.S. Capitol Police officer uh, who was killed, um, you know, but but really everybody who, uh, who works in the Capitol, who, um, you know, the, the Capitol Capitol Police are um, have close relationships, you know, with with members and their staff, and um, you know, this is yet another really, really difficult and, and uh, very sad event for their community. And so, I'm um, just to sort of keep them in your thoughts as well. Thank you. That's that's a great reminder. My object this week, also another podcast. <clears throat> I should have talked about this earlier because I feel like now that we're not that we're at the end of the pandemic, but we're sort of entering into this new phase where things are feeling. Like the crisis is not upon us, but there's a podcast that I have listened to now for months that has been hugely informative and very good about sort of knowing where to calibrate both where we are in the pandemic and then also even your personal anxiety levels about it. I found it very useful called This Week in Virology. Good podcast. It's a very good podcast. They're often extremely long. They will go on for like two hours. I don't know that I've ever listened to an entire TWIV, as they call it. But it is like, it's like for virologists and epidemiologists, like it's science talk. It's super sciencey. I want to warn people about that. Like they do a pretty good job of translating it into lay terms. But most of what you, uh, that I find I learned, you're kind of picking up by context. But the more I've listened to it, I've also just started to learn a lot more about viruses and how they work and how they spread. Uh, and it's great. And they, they uh, I think they do it on Zencaster, too, because I've seen their live version and it kind of looks like what we do where we can see each other. But it's awesome. You can just like nerd out on virus talk. And it's interesting, too, because lately they're talking less about COVID and talking about other viruses. So it feels like, you know, I'm not saying that like, oh, it's over, but you Pandemic can kind of... too. Yeah, right. Well, that's yeah, that's the other thing. I am definitely listening to this podcast to figure out like what the next thing is happening. Like if the TWIV people start talking about some like, you know, weird twitchy coronavirus in like, you know, some other country, like pay attention. But it's really good. And they do a clinical update every week where they talk a lot about like vaccines and how it's going. So if you want to like get super, super in the weeds, but in a way that is still accessible, check them out this week in virology. They're very good. Oh, and they talk about the weather a lot, which we don't do, but it's kind of cute. They do a weather report every time. It's charming. We should do more weather reports. We should. Maybe we'll do a weather report next week. 
But for now, that's the end of this week's podcast, everybody. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can adopt a monitor lizard at the Law for Lizard Store. Lawfarelizardstore.bite. That's it. That's it. B I T E. <laughs> That's going to go reserve the name right now. You would Trump love to Trump. be like, you could be like a little like lizard, like Yenta. You could like find lizards that need homes. For example, the one on Susan's window. Exactly. Well, I think he's found a home. I think it's Susan's house. It's, I think that's what's going on. He seems on. pretty happy where he is. Oh, he's cute. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security whenever you download us. Uh, oh, well, we are on Facebook. I forgot to mention that. Still, whenever you download the podcast, be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps us out. And share the podcast with others. Push that little share button. Tell your friends. Tell lizards who need podcasts to check it out. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from the aforementioned Great Goat Rodeo. By the way, Zachary Frank, who gets a shout out on the After Trump podcast, he turns out to not just be a very good virtual studio engineer, but he's an amazing uh, sound designer and mixer of complex uh, soundscapes. And so when you listen to to After Trump, you will hear the uh, work of one Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo, who He's is like, your DJ. like an object lesson of his own today. Shamelessly double dipping on the object lesson, Ben. You should do an <laughs> After Trump cast playlist on Spotify where you can get his mixes. That'd be pretty good. This show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Prince Hamza and his house arrest band, I Want a Coop Baby. Yeah. speaking of things that listeners of a certain age will remember actually maybe everybody who listens to this podcast will remember i have this vision of like you know cool 20 year olds like you know tuning into rational security but oh they do they do whether or not they know like you know like uh old hip-hop and salt and pepper is another thing also just in case people need to hear this when the travel bans are all lifted and we're all allowed to go places Jordan, one of the great vacation spots in the world. So, such a fabulous country to spend time in. Go to Jordan. Rational Security is brought to you by the Jordan Tourist Bureau. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And you can hang out with Sophia Yan when you're there. Maybe she'll meet you at Petra. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. 